You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. What's up, Mark? Jake, what's up is that we are running a contest. So audience, if you would like to join us as a professional podcaster, and that means you get paid as a part of the Oil & Gas Global Network professional podcasting team as part of our Oil & Gas Global Network family, we're running a contest. We have a new show coming out, Oil & Gas Offshore. I don't care if you know about offshore at all. All I care is if you have a passion for being a podcaster. If you do and you want to enter the contest, it's really simple. You have to have a LinkedIn account, and if you don't have one, go open one up now. But I need you to shoot a quick video saying why you should be the next host uh, for the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast. I need you to use the hashtag OGGN Host Search. So it's hashtag OGGN Host Search. Then also tag OGGN in it. The contest ends Friday, July 22nd at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. But enter, and we're going to pick one lucky winner, and you're going to join us as a professional podcaster. How cool is that, Jake? That's pretty awesome. And you had no idea I was getting ready to spring it on you, did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. So it's we've grown to the point now where we're reaching out to our audience looking for a podcast host. And what a lot of people don't know, Jake, is every single one of our hosts start out as a listener to one of our shows. You start out as a listener to one of our shows. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So great place to find people that have similar interests because you listen to podcasts. So come on, people. Enter the contest. Um, we're getting a lot of traffic on this already. We just launched it yesterday. So shoot a quick video. It doesn't need to be professionally done. I don't care if you know anything about offshore. I don't care where you live in the world. As long as you have internet access, come join our family. It'd be fun. Yep. So that's what's up, Jake. So we've also got a another review we should probably read from uh, Yin Tham. Writes, what a better way to beat the Bay Area traffic blues. Five stars. Uh, he writes, this podcast keeps me entertained and well-informed about the industry as I brave the Bay Area traffic in California. Love listening to Mark and Jake on my lawn drives to work. Always excited to see a new episode get published. That is, he's exactly, he's hit the nail on the head. There's like yep. pretty, there's Bay Area traffic is absolutely terrible. I got stuck in Bay Area traffic for like four hours last time I was there. Due to just a variety of uh, reasons, I like fell asleep. Luckily, yeah. I was driving. It was miserable. We just could not escape the Bay Area for the life of us. Yes, yeah, so this is a great view. And Yin Tam, we we actually you're on our list of happy hours. The Bay Area, we're actually launching one. We don't have a date yet. It'll probably be early 2020. But pay, pay attention when we launch that. You'll hear about it on the show. So awesome! Thanks for the review. All right, guys. You know the drill. It is the first Friday Q and A. So you guys writing questions, and we hopefully answer them. And we have a ton of questions. You guys have blown us away with just a lot of really, really great uh, questions. So hopefully we get some good answers. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into it. First question from who's a geophysicist. She writes, I'm in a good and not so good predicament. I've spent the last four years working with a geophysical consulting company, primarily for small independent E&P companies. When the owner of the company retired, I had to choose. Can go off on my own or join another company. So I joined another company. And to be honest, it's a great job, great company to be working for, but the thoughts linger about what ifs going on in my mind and the skills and the technological capabilities I can lend to other ENPs. I know what I am good at and I know what I can bring to the table and I never stop trying to learn new things to add value to my work. So my question is two parts, I suppose. What suggestions do you have as I battle the security of a job that most people would jump for? with the urge to pursue my own venture and the uncertainties of being accepted by companies. To that end, I choose to take this job because I am young, 28, and I'm unsure about my ability to properly sell myself, proclaimed introvert for sure. I still don't feel good about it. I firmly believe in my competencies as, ge as a geophysicist and the value that I can add to companies. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Love the content. Keep it up. But great question. Do you want to take it first or you want me to? Jake, I'm going to let you take this first because this is like right in your wheelhouse. You're, you're a bit of an introvert. You're young. You had to make that choice yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I first kind of went out on my own. I was uh, 23. Yeah, I was 23 when I went on my own. I did not have like a super great job to leave or anything. So I guess it was a little bit easy for me, but what I was leaving was school. So I think if you've got that itch and if I think if you know that you're not going to be fulfilled in a position working for somebody else and you know that you need to kind of go out there and do your own thing, there's really no easier way to do it than you just got to put together a plan sometimes without a plan and, you know, Colin left his job, for example, without any kind of a plan. We were just throwing a lot of things at the, the wall and seeing what was going to stick and it all worked out. So my suggestion would be to, to do it. It's better to do it now when you're young and you're, you know, without hopefully, you know, too many uh, dependents, you can always bounce back from something like this. If it just completely goes belly up, Hey, guess what? You can go start something else or Hey, you can go get another job. So my suggestion would be to yeah, to just do it. And then and also surround yourself with other people who've already done it too. So if you have any more questions, you can always reach out to me. I'd be glad to meet up with you and kind of talk you through some things. I'm definitely introverted as well. Most people don't realize that until you actually spend some time around me. So I'm pretty good at selling myself. I'm pretty good at selling whatever uh, I've kind of set my mind to. That's an acquired skill. It's something that can be practiced and something that you can get good at. So that's my two cents. Yeah, so I agree 100% with you, Jake. The other couple of things is you, because she's a geophysicist, I would suspect she could go halfway, which means she probably can approach her company she's working for now and be very open and transparent and go, look, I want to do my own thing, but I really love it here. Can I stop being an employee and start being a contractor? That will give her the financial freedom to explore that. And then the other thing is she, and I love the fact that she's self-aware enough to say she worries about selling herself. I get that. That's what you hire for. So as you grow, you hire for the skill sets you don't have. So myself, I'm very much an extrovert, right? I have no problem selling almost anything to anybody. I struggle with things like business skills, like financial skills. So we hire for that. So I think you're in a good place. And I agree with Jake. While you're young, before you have a lot of fiscal and dependent responsibilities, go ahead and go for it. The worst that can happen is that you have to go look for another job somewhere down the road. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So you've tried it. But I would I would, I would, would venture out halfway and see if your company lets you go to be a contractor. Now, you can't stay there. That is just buying you time. Once you do that, you have to immediately hit the road, get your website built, get your marketing machine built, and start marketing your services to other companies because you can't have one client as your only income because if you lose that client, it's a bad place to be. You need more eggs in the basket. But, but I, yeah, I agree with Jake 100%. Just go do it. All right. Up next, we had a question from Bailey. She writes, I'm a new listener to your podcast. And as I'm trying to get a job as an account servicer in an energy corporation, I apologize if this has been asked, but I'm just starting to kind of make my way through your archives. As a recent college grad in a non-STEM field, I was wondering what is the best way to learn about the field or the best way to supplement my resume to put me in a position to have a great application to get a job in the energy field. Thank you in advance. Oh, perfect, easy thing. Look at all the energy organizations. So API, uh, IADC, who else, Jake? There's like a gazillion SPE. Of SPE. And go volunteer. They, they will. They need volunteer help. This way you get exposure to the oil and gas industry. You get exposure to what these industry representation organizations are doing. You get to meet the people and be open and honest. Say, look, I don't know anything about the industry, so I'm volunteer to learn. And people will take you under their wing. I think it's probably the quickest way if you get exposure uh, without having to worry about getting a job somewhere because uh, all these organizations need volunteers and they'll, they'll be happy to talk to you and get you up to speed. Yeah, I agree. As far as beefing up your resume, I'm trying to think what some of the things you can put on there. I don't know, but I think that it's going to be the same advice that we kind of give everybody who's looking for a job. It's uh, a big part of it is just going to be who you know and networking as much as possible. Like Mark said, volunteering for different organizations is a great way to do that. Wherever you're based, I guarantee you can probably find some kind of different meetups of different just individuals who are already in the industry. So I would just take advantage of that.
Hey, Jake, these next two questions, don't read their names. Do me a favor, just don't read their names. Because like, this, this is getting kind of iffy, and I just want to make sure we don't get anybody in trouble or have people <laughs> do to them what they've done to me. So, But, but read the questions, and I'll explain once okay. we get into it. All right. So we've got an anonymous question from an oil services project manager. It writes, first off, thanks for doing the podcast. Now my reason for writing. In the June 17th, 2019 episode, one of you mentioned the atmospheric CO2 averages around 2,000 and has reached as high as 7,000, which today is sitting around 400 uh, parts per million. Can you please cite your source? I cannot find the same evidence. Thanks and keep it up. Okay. So the reason I asked Jake not to read this, this is not the first time I've talked about my opinion on climate change. And I want to be very clear here. This isn't Jake's opinion. I'll let Jake jump in if he wants to or not, if he doesn't. My opinion, which is based upon science, because I understand science, is that Climate change is real, right? If you look outside and you don't see glaciers, that means we're not in an ice age. And an ice age is a period of global cooling, which means by default, we're in a period of global warming. That pendulum swings. Global warming, ice age, global warming, ice age. Legit. My opinion is that man's activity has not been proven to speed up the swing of that pendulum. So I got this question, which I thought was very well done. Thank you for, for being open-minded. Jake and audience, I made a mistake. I was absolutely wrong. So when I quoted this, I think what is two or so episodes ago, when I talked about when the beginning, when mankind was on the planet, uh, CO2 levels were as high as 7,000 parts per million. I was wrong. So in the history of the earth, we about one and a half billion years ago, a CO2 was between 7,800 parts per million. That's totally natural, totally normal. But mankind wasn't on, on the planet. I believe mankind appeared on the planet about 200,000 years ago. So I was wrong in saying that it was that high while mankind was here. So to answer your question, uh, he's looking for the source. The thing is, because of the way the search engines work, trying to find legitimate, unbiased sources is almost impossible. You have to go through about 100 pages on Google if you look for the history of CO2 to find information that starts being unbiased. So much of it's biased and gets pushed up toward the top because that's what people are looking for. But the source that I like, and there's a bunch of ways to measure CO2, and even that's a whole science in itself, but the, they had some geology uh, from the University of Maryland, uh, Alan J. Kroffman, and then Shanghai of the geoscience department of Virginia Tech. And they actually wrote an article that was published and peer-reviewed called CO2 levels in the atmosphere estimated from individual microfossils. And that's a very critical thing. So they use laser interpretation of gaseous of gas analysis from microfossils, which is one of the most accurate ways to get CO2 levels. And I could spend a whole show and talk telling you why that is, but that that's my source. So read the next one, Jake. All right, next one is a uh, from a chemical engineer. He writes, Mark and Jake, I liked your podcast until recently. Bum, bum, bum. But now you're starting to move from fact-based discussions into politics. I'm making the statement on your recent podcast that CO2 partial million is high, but only represents one-sixth of the second game of Thrones is misleading. The current levels are the highest since 800,000 years. Yes, maybe the CO2 levels were higher 4 billion years ago, but there was no life on Earth. Do you subscribe to the I don't care, I will be dead, or should we at least report the facts and do something just in case there are consequences for our children? Okay, so first thing, person, you've brought this into politics. I never mention politics. and <laughs> I'm talking about facts. Second thing, I understand your concern. There's a lot of people and everybody's hearts are in the right place, right? Everybody's worried about the future, trying to make sure this planet is still here, just like they were in the 70s when the same climate scientists were saying that we're getting ready to enter in a period of global cooling. They thought we're getting ready to enter into our next ice age. And they had plans to spread cold dust on the poles to delay that from happening. So the same people that cannot predict our weather more than a week or two ahead of time in the 70s, you can go Google it, find yourself, predict it, we're in an ice age. They were obviously wrong. Fast forward to now, 
the odds of them being right, in my opinion, is no more or less than it was in the 70s when they were blatantly wrong. I do worry about our future. I do worry about environment. My degree is in wildlife management. I understand this stuff at a very high level. So I didn't go political in this. Obviously, this uh, listener thought I did. So so our apologies. I didn't mean to pull politics in this. Now, like I said earlier, I made a mistake. I was wrong when I quoted the higher CO2 levels. I said mankind was here and I was wrong about that. So in this case, he's right. It was, wasn't 800,000 years ago. It was actually one, one and a half billion years ago when they were that high. But the other thing I want people to understand is how to actually understand if a study is scientifically valid. So here, everybody out there that, that wants me to say, hey, I'm wrong about this mankind influencing global warming, simple thing. If you can send me this one simple thing, I'll admit on the air I'm wrong about that too because I have no problem with it when I'm wrong. This is what I need. For the study you're going to send me, the data set cannot be tampered with whatsoever. The Paris Climate Exchange, uh, one of the things their data sets was that somebody averaged out to three decimal points. Well, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it changes the data. So number one, the data set that they're using, that you're using, that you're going to send me in this study cannot be tampered with at all. Number two, it has to be double blind placebo. So the climate scientists that are getting the data set, the people that are giving them the data set doesn't know which one's the real and which one's fake. Because the only way to prove this is have a real data set and a fake data set, right? So it has to be a double blind placebo. The results that the climate scientists get has to be repeatable, which means you give the same data sets to different climate scientists and they come out with more or less the same results. Then it has to be peer reviewed, which means that the scientists, the climate scientists as a whole have to review the findings to make sure it's legit. And then the mathematical model used cannot assume the earth is flat. That's another problem is that a lot of these mathematical models assume the earth is flat and assume that the warmth that we absorb from the sun and from the greenhouse effect is the same, which is not. Also, the mathematical model cannot assume that all the gases in the atmosphere are evenly distributed because they're not. And then, like I said, the data set not only cannot be touched, it can't be cherry picked. A lot of the data sets I've looked at cherry picked the last 130 years because we're in a, a, a bit of an increase in global warming. The data set needs to go back at least 300,000 years, right? So if you can show me one study, one, that's all I need, one, right? And with the amount of notoriety and the amount of talk and the amount of public perception around climate change, it should be easy for our audience, which is well over 600,000 listeners, to find me one study that is the data is double-blind placebo, the results are repeatable, it's peer-reviewed, the mathematical does not assume the earth is flat, the mathematical model does not assume the gases are evenly distributed, and the data set has not been averaged and has not been cherry-picked. So send me one, audience. Now, if you send me one and it doesn't meet these criteria, I'm not going to even talk about it because I don't have time for it. But j- just send me one. It should be easy for you all to find that. And then finally, talked about making sure consequences for our children. You know the number one way, Jake, that people that live in modern society, so here and in Europe, the developed world, you know the number one way to reduce your CO2 emission is? Have less kids. That, absolutely. Have, a, have one less kid. That makes a bigger impact than driving a car, makes a bigger impact than you know recycling, makes a bigger impact than, than watching your CO2 emissions, make a bigger impact than what fossil fuels you use. Just have one less child. I'm not doing that. Although I'm, I have one, I'm not having any more. So <laughs> maybe I am doing that. <laughs> but, but that's the end of that. And then finally, audience, and I didn't talk about this when this happened. This was years ago, but I've aired my views on this before. And I actually got a death threat years ago, which I was not real concerned about because it was somebody on Twitter and they erased their account. Well, when I talked about this a, a month or so ago, I got a, another threat. It wasn't a death threat, but somebody threatened me with physical harm. And honestly, if, if you're the type of person that can only do that behind a keyboard and then you delete your account, I'm not worried about you at all. Let's move on. All right. Up next, we've got uh, some other questions. Um, Let's not do all of them. Let's pick one. Okay. Let me read through these really quickly. I'll let you pick one. Let's just go to number two. 
That'll be interesting. So the question is, will the U.S. go into full war with Iran? Um, I don't think so. Probably not. So the House voted today to check Trump's authority on strikes in Iran. So now there's going to be a uh, kind of a little bit of showdown within the Senate. So I don't think so. But you, you never really know. You never know Trump, first off. You never know these countries. So honestly, it's a toss-up. Your guess is yeah, and, and if they do, you can see a price and a spike in crude, which is actually really going to benefit us long-term-wise. I hate to say it because I don't want to see any boots and ground anywhere. We don't need that. But interesting, this question is from a, a, a gentleman I met online probably two years ago. And, and I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher his name, but it's Ludwig Hoff. He's blind, Jake. And he is a big fan of our podcast. He listens to all our shows. I'm always getting feedback from him. He's not in the oil and gas industry at all. He just likes our show. And so we're looking to maybe work with him and expand our happy hours to Europe because he's right smack in the middle there. there, And uh, he does some business in China as well. So I appreciate him reaching out. appreciate him being a fan of the show. Awesome, man. All right. Next question is from one of the managing partners at EIV Capital. They write, just heard about your podcast yesterday. Enjoyed listening to it and the tech podcast today. Excellent programs. I have a generational question as I'm 59 years old. Busy oil, quote unquote, bros. I've always thought bros just referred to guys. Does the word apply to girls also? Urban Dictionary wasn't definitive. Don't want to embarrass myself by asking the younger guys at my company. Keep the good work. I'm 53, Jake. So I'll let you answer this one first. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can, I, th- I think it, I think bro is more so, I think it's more of just like a, a mindset or a type of personality. Like, I think like, yeah, you don't have to be a certain age or anything. I know, trust me, I know bros who are well into their fifties. Well, her question really is, does it apply to women as well? So if I say I all so. bros. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And I agree with you. So, so the meaning of the words change over time, you know, Google 20 years ago was a mathematical term. It had nothing to do with a search engine. And now when I say Google, all you think of is the search engine. I think now in bros applies equally to men and women. It's We have so many young women in our industry, which is awesome and incredible, that you're just one of the oil bros. So that's I agree with Jake. I think it's just, just a term for anybody in the industry now. Maybe 10 years ago it wasn't, but now, yeah. In my circles, like not everybody's a bro though, okay? There's a clear line between like your bros and then like – other people, right? Acquaintances, goes, right? Just sweet yeah, acquaintances yeah, but it goes, yeah, but it also goes to, I mean, for women too, like I have women that it would just be kind of be considered bros too. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. Patty. Gonna, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. If not, just let us know. We'll, we'll try to take another stab at it. Hey, actually, Jake, let me stop for a second. So audience, y'all are in our world. Y'all listen to the show. What do y'all think? Reach out to us and let us know. Let us know. Do you think Busy oil bros apply to women. If I say all bros does it apply equally to women, I'd love our audience to let us know what we think. And then Patty, once we get answers from audience, we'll come back and let you know what the audience said. <laughs> That's a great idea. Uh, next question is from John, who's a subsea engineer. Hey, everybody, say, guys, a really big fan of the podcast and all the way that you break down complicated topics in a simple manner. Uh, he writes, I'm fresh out of school, starting in a subsea engineering role at a major oil and gas company this August. I do not have a lot of oil and gas background as my focus in school has been on mechanical engineering with my internships being in manufacturing and product design. I was wondering if you guys could reference me to any material that you could recommend I could look over and study before I start working. Yeah, so this is classic uh, subsea manufacturer, subsea companies. They love mechanical engineers. You can't get a degree in, in subsea engineering. Typically, you're a mechanical engineer, and you go work with what's called the fellows or the gray beards. And those are like the old, 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 old guys that have been doing subsea engineering for 30 years. And you pick it all up. And after 10 years, you're now a subsea engineer. So I love the fact that he's wanting to learn before he even starts his job. A couple of books that I, off the top of my head, subsea engineering handbook, go check out on Amazon, uh, Deepwater Petroleum Exploration and Production. Um, that's another good one. And then 
There's a hand, there's a subsea engineering handbook. So those three are the ones I'd go look at. It's basically engineering on steroids is what it is. You're dealing with pressures and temperatures in a, a very hostile environment and you have to develop a product that cannot fail. So get, get used to triple and quadruple redundancies, a meteorology like you've never seen before, an attention to well details like you've never seen. But that's, I love that world. If, if, if I wasn't doing this, I think I would somehow be, be involved in the subsea world. I've always thought that was so cool. Big shout out to a technique FMC who over the years have done a lot of work educating me, showing me their manufacturing facilities. Just a great company doing some really great stuff out there. Awesome. Great, great question. Great answer. Next up is a question from George, who's in equity research. Uh, he writes, hey guys, I love your show. It's helping me get a much better understanding of the oil and gas sector in general. My question is, I'm currently working in equity research and have an interview at Chevron next week for a trading analyst role. Having never had any direct experience in the oil markets, do you have any tips or advice on how to smash these interviews other than practicing behavioral questions? Much love and keep up the great work. You know, so it's hard for me to give a really useful opinion. I haven't been interviewed in, I don't know, 20 years. I've, I've done a lot of interviewing myself. So when I interview people, I'm looking, I'm not looking to see if you can do the job. I'm looking to see if you have the skill sets and personalities to learn how to do the job. I'm also looking to see if you're a good fit for our company's culture. That's, that's probably a bigger thing than anything else. Asking a lot of questions, always give thumbs up in my head to people I'm interviewing that ask a lot of questions, a lot of pertinent questions. So you know, that's that's probably the only direction I can give you. I don't know if I can help you ace this interview, especially a trading analyst. I don't really know that world other than it's a highly stressful world. Any input, Jake, on that? My only input is to ask as many questions as you're being asked. An interview yeah. shouldn't be one way. It should be a two-way interview. You should be interviewing them to see if they're even a good fit for you. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. And the other thing is, if you're interviewing at Chevron, I, I don't think I would show up business casual. I, I would show up full business for your first interview. I know dressing apart doesn't carry as much weight as it used to, but you're going to be competing with a bunch of other people. And the person that's interviewing is probably older than you, and they'll probably appreciate the fact that you put on a tie. Yep. All right. Last question of the day is from Tasha, who's a test engineer. This is kind of funny. Mark asked for comments on the pronunciations of Pemex. It's <laughs> it's close to how he says it in the Mozambique uh, gas, oil and gas this week podcast, only with the stress on the pe instead of on the mex. So it should be Pemex, not Pemex. I think that's what it means. Yeah. So I actually had one of my buddies from Oracle whose family is Mexican reach out to me. I say reach out to me. He sent me a novel via text, correcting every part of my grammar. I, evidently, I pronounced the president's name wrong, all of his names, all 17 of his names. I pronounced Pimex wrong. So my apologies to my Latin speaking friends out there. But I do appreciate it. That's why I asked you to tell us how it's pronounced so we can learn. I mean, I, I'm learning every day. I make mistakes all the time. It's nice. Our audience reach out and educates me. Um, but that's awesome. Thank you all. And speaking of thank y'all, we'd like to thank you by giving you something really cool, which is this one-of-a-kind, uniquely serial-numbered IBM shirt. I've extremely high quality cut for men and women. Got the OGGN logo on one sleeve, the IBM logo on the other sleeve, and a, a patent for a pump jack on the front. We give away one a week. These things are instantly collectible because they're uniquely serial-numbered, and Jake and I will be giving away some cool stuff the rest of this year based upon that serial number. So go, go to the show notes, register, and win one of these shirts. And Jake, I've had... Three people from Europe, four people from South America, one person from Australia reach out to me and tell me thank you for the shirt. So our global audience, obviously, thank you for listening, for registering for shirts. I don't know if I'd be spending more money shipping the shirts to, to Australia than the, the shirt itself costs, but that's what we're here for, to make sure all of our audience gets a shirt. I don't care where you are in the world. And speaking of where you are in the world, Jake, where are we with the rig count? 987. 
It's a good number. Speaking of good numbers, at the end of the show, you'll hear Julie talking about our events on deck. Pay attention to the street team. We're still looking for volunteers. The role keeps morphing because, quite honestly, we're new at this ourselves, too. I'm going to start doing uh, – there's a Facebook group for us – group, listen to me. There's a Facebook group <laughs> for our street team. I'm going to start doing live streaming once a month. Some of our other podcast hosts are as well to help educate and just get to know you. we got some cool swag coming, some unique T-shirts and everything. And as of now, really what you're doing is just helping us promote our stuff on social media. So it's not that hard, but go sign up for it. We love our extended street team. You're part of our family and we have a global footprint of street team members all over the world, which is awesome. Speaking of awesome, if you want to learn about all the oil and gas events that are going on, we have a monthly newsletter. It's free. We don't charge you anything. Sign up. That link's in the show up as well. And then if you want Jake and I to come speak like we are at IPANM on July 24th and 26th, big shout out to those people. We're actually doing a keynote and a podcast there. If you want Jake and I to come do something similar, just reach out to us. We're happy to share details. It's a load of fun. And especially as we enter toward the fall, a lot of sales and marketing organizations want to close out the year or start planning their kickoff for next year. Let Jake and I come out there and not only educate people, but have fun. I mean, how often have you you had a live podcast that's your marketing or sales kickoff? Never. So let us know. And then first Friday Q&A, you know the drill with that. Submit a question. If we use your question on the air like we did here, uh, we'll give you a big shout out. And then while you're there, just go ahead and give us your email address on the website. We promise never to spam you. Join our LinkedIn group, which Jake is pushing 3,000 members. And I remember when it was 32 people. And of those 32 people, seven were friends of mine. So it's grown it's grown a lot. And then I guess that's about it. Jake, you ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right, remember folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here is Julie with Events on Deck. Okay, before heading into the Events on Deck for July, I have a few OGG announcements. We moved our happy hours to quarterly, and so the Houston and Midland happy hour will be in sometime August or September. Be on the lookout for the date to be announced. And we are launching our Denver happy hour on August 29th from 4 to 6 p.m. All the details are below. And now let's move on to the events on deck. We have the Argentina Oil, Gas, and Energy Summit 2019. That's July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. The link is below. Then we have a happy hour coming up on July 23rd. It's the Intentional Networking Oil and Gas Happy Hour at the Houston Zoo. This is hosted by Equilibria, NOV, OGGN, and Flutura. And a portion of the ticket sales will be going to Redeem Ministries, a local charity to help human trafficking victims. You can sign up below. Next up, Mark, Jake, and Paige will be speaking at the 2019 IPANM annual meeting July 24th and 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is addressing operators' needs in 2019. Sign up below. The Desk Derek Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual Shoot for the Future Clay Shoot is July 26th in Decatur, Texas. Sign up below. And last but not least, Summer Nape is coming up August 21st through 22nd in Houston, Texas. It's where the deals happen. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.